We've been uh, talking a little bit uh, about these. Everybody put your fingers on your temples. Uh, we're talking about mastering our minds. Or, or keep them up there. I didn't tell you to put them down. This is like Simon says. Keep them up there. Uh, we've been talking about mastering our minds or, or more uh, succinctly making uh, God the master of our minds. Now you can put them down. Uh, there's, uh, between our temples, there's a war going on. In fact, can I just prompt you uh, to what's happening right now? I'm about to preach God's word to you. We have an adversary who does not want you to listen to what I'm saying. And so uh, he, he loves to lean into your sin nature, the flesh that is still a part of you as the old man, and, and distract you from what's happening right now over these next 30, 40, 60, 90 minutes. No, yeah. But he doesn't want you to hear this. Now, I, I grew up going to church. I'm looking at some of you youngers out there. I can't remember when I first heard a sermon because I never listened. Because you could sit here and look me right in the face and be miles from this room. I do it. I know you. But that's one of the ploys of our adversary. He's the father of lies. He loves to whisper untruths uh, in, into our ears and into our minds. Uh, he, he loves to uh, uh, you know, accuse us and curse us and, and distract us wherever he can. And so I'm grateful that God, as we've been studying this in this series, has given us um, tools in which, uh, or with which we can fight this battle that's going on in our heads. We've, we've been studying uh, the mind, uh, and I've been using principally a book by a guy named Craig Groeschel. Groeschel. He is a pastor in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, he did a great job just writing about this subject. I'm, I'm borrowing liberally from him today because uh, he just said it so well. I want to say it to you. Uh, in, in much the same way that he did. But uh, read the book. It's a great book. Uh, and, and here's one of the things that he says. Life moves in the direction of our strongest thoughts. It, it's true. If it, if it starts here, depending on the effectiveness of your filter. Has anybody got a filter issue? Anybody else got a filter issue? Uh, if it starts here, it's going to come out here. But it's going to start here. Now, as you act in life, it's going to start here and then it's going to uh, come out in the things that you do with your hands, in the directions that you go with your feet. It starts here. Our life is always moving towards our strongest thoughts. And like I said, God has given us uh, his own divine power in fighting the battles that occur between our temples. It says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, that the weapons of our warfare in our minds are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy the strongholds. If you're here that week, we talked about these like uh, these 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 fortresses of untruth that live in our heads. We talked the next week about how they're kind of ruts, these patterns that we keep traveling on, that that keep blowing our lives up uh, unless we uh, knock those strongholds down and fill those ruts in and dig trenches to the truth that God has for us in their place. Paul goes on and he says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So everything that zips across your screen is meant to be taken captive, given over to the God who made you. Today I want to continue our discussion on mastering our minds or letting God be the master of our minds by talking about um, perspectives and perceptions. 
Uh, depending on the perspective with which you look at something, you'll form a perception of that something and it'll become your reality and it'll shape how you move forward in your life. Um, agree with me if you can. Uh, has anybody noticed that it's sometimes really hard to find the things we're looking for if we're looking from the wrong direction or perspective? Uh, I, I think that's universally true. I went golfing with a bunch of guys this past week. Uh, I want to thank Travis again for filling in. He just does an incredible job. But uh, as I was out uh, playing 189 holes of golf, that's a lot of golf. Uh, we hit a lot of shots, and I wish I could tell you every one of them found the short grass, the middle of the fairway. Several of them did not. And here, here's how golf courses work. They are lined, especially in North Georgia where we were, by trees and leaves that have fallen and twigs and all these. And so if one of these goes deep into the woods, uh, may God help us all in finding it, right? And so everybody will go help the other guy uh, who has lost his ball in this particular hole, and we'll be walking around two, three, four minutes uh, in the direction that we know the ball went. We all watched it go in here, and, and we'll just be, how is, it, how is it possible that this white ball against this brown backdrop is not seeable? But here's what will happen. The ball will burrow. It'll just kind of, you know, roll under some twigs, some leaves, and stuff like that. And so we'll have been looking in this direction, and it's not until we get over here that you see the little white kind of peering out from beneath. And so then the guy who hit it in there lines it up again and shanks it to the other side of the woods, and we do the whole thing all over again. <laughs> Perspective matters. The direction from which you look at something uh, greatly determines your understanding of that something, or you finding the truth in that situation. These perspectives go on to shape our perceptions. Anybody heard this statement before? Perception is reality, right? And that's true. Like, uh, uh, science, science has kind of done studies on this, that it's incredible that, that, that two people or more than two people can look at the same set of facts and come out with completely different determinations. They can face the same truth and go in different directions, uh, having seen what they've seen. I, I read a book probably, man, probably 30 years ago now uh, called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by a guy named Stephen Covey. Great book. If you want to read it, it's, it's really helpful in ordering life. But, uh, but in the book, there was a picture. I'll never forget it. Uh, it's, and, and I'm going to put it on the screen in a second. And watch out. What I want you to do is I want you to look at it, and, and I'm going to give you the count of three, and then uh, you're going to tell me what you see. Okay, ready? Everybody ready to look at the picture? Here it comes. Go. One, two, three. All right. How many people saw an old lady? Anybody see an old lady? How many people saw a young lady? Did you look around and see all the different hands? Now, all the people who saw an old lady, what are you looking at? You're looking at that big old hunker nose there on the front, Right? and how the, her lips are kind of pursed and, and, and thin, and she's wearing a shawl over her head, and, and her eyeball is kind of squinty and looking out. She's, that's the old lady. Everybody who saw the young lady, do you see the old lady now? <laughs> Keep looking. Everybody who saw the old lady, do you see the young lady? The young lady is looking in this direction. You can see her kind of cheek lined out there where you thought it was a big honking nose, right? And she's got a little ear kind of underneath her hairline. And you can see her eyelashes over on the other side of her head. And that, that green feather is kind of the plume coming out of her Victorian-style hat and uh, veil. Is everybody seeing her, the young lady now? So you're looking at the same picture, but depending on what you saw first, you saw old lady, 
or you saw a young lady. Some of you are still looking for both. <laughs> we'll meet after. I'll try to explain it to you. Uh, I, a preacher friend of mine uh, long ago said, this is how we come to life in every situation that we have in life. We can either see what God has in it for us or we can see, uh, you know, the things that uh, the, the, the world would have us see, the, the, the desperation, the, the disenchantment, the, the, the hopelessness. We can, we, the way he put it, <laughs> last service I had a donut up here and someone on the worship team bit a bite out of it. Anyway, but we have a whole donut here. Who likes donuts? Anybody like donuts? Because we're Americans. Come on. But some people look at the donut and they see the goodness of the donut and they're like, oh, I can't wait to eat that donut. But some people, the Eeyores in the world, right, they just see the hole. They don't see the donut at all. In fact, they look at life and they just have this innate ability to see all the ways that things could go wrong and therefore will go wrong. They see the old lady as opposed to the young. Not, if you saw the old lady, it's fine. You're not whole people. Anyway. But you have that choice. You can see the opportunity or you can see the impossibility. I love the people who have that optimistic, uh, see the donut rather than the whole. Uh, I'm married one. My wife, Eleanor, uh, sees things that I do not. Uh, in fact, she, she took me on a, a trip a couple of Fridays ago. We had a day together. We drove down to Arcadia which is down south of here somewhere. I just kept driving until the phone said stop. But uh, had some breakfast. And then the whole reason we went down in that direction was to go to this little town called Ona to visit a place called Solomon's Castle. And Solomon's Castle uh, was built by this guy named Howard Solomon. It's a long story. I'm not going to go into it. But he was, he was, he was an eccentric guy. He, he loved to take things that no one else wanted and make stuff out of them. And so he, he looked at his property and he says, you know what we need here? We need a castle. And so he went about building like a six or 7,000 square foot house fashioned like a castle. And what, what he did to make it look like a castle, pretty ingenious, he went to the local newspaper. And back in those days, in the late 60s, you would print your newspaper using tin plates and you would uh, somehow put the screen on the plate and run it through the, and, and, and then all these plates had to be thrown out after like one use because you can't use them twice. And so there's these stacks, pallets of tin plates and he, he bought all of those up for, you know, just drastically low prices. And he says, I'm gonna cover my house in tin plates and he did. And if you go look at this place, it looks like a stone castle covered in tin plates and for 50 years, it's, it's not weathered or I mean, it's, it looks just like it did when he probably built it. It's amazing. You go inside, he's got all of these. He was an artist. He's got all of these things that he made out of junk. He went and told all the farmers that lived around him, hey, if you ever get tired of something, something stops working, throw it over my fence. I'll make something out of it. And he did, and he sold these pieces of reclaimed art for thousands of dollars. There's many of them in museums. They're fascinating. They all have stories. He takes gas cans and cuts them in half, and he puts, uh, he made a beer can chair. They used to make uh, beer cans out of steel, and so he, he welded them all together, and he had a beer can chair. I want that for my house. Anyway, uh, uh, he just, he was incredible. Eleanor's the same way. Eleanor uh, you know, was, was looking in the closet one day. I don't know how old she was, but she saw a suit coat and a tie, and she says, you know what that is? That's a purse. Let's take the tie and make it the strap. Cut up that suit coat. You got the nice pocket in front for your phone, ladies. It's very nice. You can buy these at her Echo Thrift Store. They're for sale right now. Anyway, uh, uh, but those are the kinds of things that some people are able to do. But a lot of us, maybe not in every area of life, 
But we just see junk. We see uh, uselessness, that this is not something that could be useful in my life. Would it surprise you to know that the Bible's full of stories that start out looking like all we got here is junk, all we got here is useless stuff, but God uses the faith of the person involved to make amazing things occur? Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he was in the middle of a famine, and God directed him to a widow's house. She had a son. They had enough oil and enough flour for one more biscuit, and then they were going to die. That's literally what the Bible says. We're just going to eat this last meal and then die like everybody else is dying around us here in this famine. Elijah says, hey, if you let me have that cot over there and I can stay in your apartment, um, God has told me that that flour and that oil will never run out, and that's exactly what happened. By faith, this woman received the prophet, and everything changed because God took nothing and made everything they needed. You go forward in the New Testament, and Jesus is hanging out with 5,000 men and their families, and he's taught them all day long, and it's time for dinner. You know the story, right? And nobody's thought to, you know, cater. And so uh, uh, let's go find out what we got. And they found one kid, two fish, five loaves. All the disciples were like, see, send them home. And Jesus says, perfect. And he starts by blessing this meager lunch. And then not only feeds everybody, but has leftovers, right? The power of seeing past the improbable. The power of trusting even when things seem impossible. That's the key. Perspective, perception, seeing the donut and not the whole. Caleb and Joshua were two guys from Israel. They were sent in with 10 other dudes uh, across the Jordan River in Numbers 13 to check out this promised land, this land that God had told their forefather Abraham that his descendants would inherit. They come back, and anybody remember the report? 10 guys said, no way, no how. Can't happen. They got giants over there. Everybody over there is an NBA center. We, we'll, we'll die the first day. We're going to stay over here on the safe side of the Jordan. This is crazy. But Caleb and Joshua, are you kidding? It's like the dairy aisle at Publix. They got milk. They got honey. It's awesome over there. And who is on our side? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We got this. Took them a while. But Joshua was on the front row as God gave the promised land to Israel. Let me ask you a question. What's your perspective on life right now? It's been a tough year. A little weird, right? Lots of masks. Lots of staying away from each other. We had political unrest. We had racial unrest. Lots of things going on. Uh, from what vantage point are you viewing those things? Are you viewing them in your own strength, in your own uh, not, you know, wisdom, or, or, or are you looking at those through the lens that we've been given by God? Uh, is, is your perception being shaped by fear, anger, or are you submitted to the love of Christ and seeking to bring that love to the world around you? As we continue talking about perceptions and perspectives, 
I want to bring into the psychological world in the, in the ways that the, the, the culture, our secular counselors and psychologists would talk about this. When they uh, see someone having these wrong perspectives or, or holding you know, an incorrect perception, they call it cognitive bias. Uh, cognitive bias is a mistaken reason, uh, reasoning based on personal experiences or preferences. And a lot of times our preferences stem from our personal experiences, right? So I, I grew up in, in the, uh, the, the Northeast with, uh, you know, Boston as kind of my town. And so I, when I look at the Red Sox uh, uniform, I feel pride and joy and pleasure. I see world champions. Uh, I see uh, the success. When most people from the Tampa area look at Red Sox uniforms, they see jerks and overpaid whiners and cheaters. And I was, I was told that after the last service. Don't forget cheaters. Anyway, uh, and, uh, you know, all these other things. Why? It, you're just being shaped by your experiences, where you grew up, who you root for. It shapes your preferences. Uh, I'm telling Eleanor stories today, but uh, Eleanor, when she was a young girl, was chased by a German shepherd on her bike. Did, did it bite you? It bit you too, right? Yeah. So this German shepherd bites Eleanor when she's a little girl. Uh, uh, guess how much Eleanor likes German shepherds now? Like negative infinity. Can't stand them. And then there's two huge German shepherds, actually three, one really huge one, and then two like younger German shepherds in our neighborhood. So when we're out doing our loop for our walk, um, if we see any of the German shepherds, we're going the other direction. Uh, and I can understand it on the one. The huge one, I think it's Cujo. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Uh, it's got kind of a crossed eye, and it's, it's more like, it's more taking its owner for a walk than the, the owner's taking it for a walk. Has anybody seen this dog walk? The owner's just kind of like, okay, okay, and, and, and I'm cool with not going near that one. It's, it's pretty vicious. But the two younger German shepherds are well-trained and don't even act like we're there, and we'd probably be fine, but it's just going to be better uh, for Eleanor if we go the other way. Sad German shepherds have been ruined forever by that one bike ride. But then, uh, I don't know, we'll preach this message some other year, some other week. Uh, but preferences, man, those are nasty, right? They've, they've brought an end to way too many good times and way too many good churches. You know, people bring their preferences into a church and they sanctify them, they deify them, they make them like on par with the Holy Spirit and what his call for our lives are. And if you don't do my preferences, then you're in sin and you're wrong. And unless you change, I'm leaving. And that's, that's just kind of been the story of the church forever. Can I just give you one of my pet peeves? People come to me and say, well, I can't worship to that style of music. Lean in, church. Here we go. Everybody understands that the worship of God is mandatory not contingent on whether you like the song. Everybody gets that, right? Now here, but here's the deal. I hear it all the time. People from different generations. If it's not organs and robes, it's not worship. If it's not hip-hop and dancing, it's not worship. If it's not, you know, with a guy with his jeans pegged and he's wearing some kind of weird hat and he's playing an acoustic guitar, it's not worship. Everybody look at me. If it raises... The praise to our Father, it's worship, and you should be involved. <laughs> Sit down, worship team. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> but here's my point. 
People let their preferences govern their worship of their God, whether it's in song or in community or whatever. And <laughs> these are cognitive biases that are shaped by our flesh, our previous experiences that, ingrained, that are ingrained in our choices. And it, it can make a mess of the world we live in. Go to, you know, go to every marriage. This is how it should be, says the husband. No, this is how it should be says the wife. Neither one's wrong, neither one's right. And so they do this thing that healthy marriages have figured out. We compromise. We choose to lose. We meet in the middle, abandoning our preferences for the sake. Uh, that's another sermon. I'll preach that some other time. So, as we talk about this cognitive bias thing, let's accept these, these two truths um, and, and understand them in light of the fact that cognitive biases are gonna hurt us in the end. The first truth is this. None of us in here can control what happens. Does everybody get that? Now, some of you do readily and immediately, and others, are, others in here nod like you do, and you don't get it at all. Because even though you know that's true in the dark recesses of your crazy mind, you think that if you manipulate enough, try hard enough, you'll be able to change outcomes that you can't change. And, and one of the, the great human uh, quests is to understand I'm not in control. The second one is this. Even though I can't control what happens, I can, by the grace of God, control how I perceive what is happening. So even though I can't control outcomes, I can, in the midst of whatever my situation is, bring my best mind, by the grace of God, to those situations. And even as things are falling apart around me, still honor God and bring glory to him and find the good, however meager, in this situation that God is allowing in my life. No. The quest then is for us to see beyond the end of our nose, the, the, the forest for the trees type stuff, right? And to see God in the midst of our messes. Kind of like Elisha, this other prophet who came after Elijah. He's hanging out in a town in Israel in Second uh, Kings chapter 6. And the army from Syria, the, the northern bordering country, comes down into Israel and surrounds the town that Elisha is in. And everybody in the town, rightfully so, is freaking out. We're either going to be killed or taken prisoner. Syria has come. We've got no defense. We don't have sword one. And this is where it ends. And Elisha looks at everybody in the town, especially to his servant, who he's having this conversation with, as recorded there in 2 Kings 6. And he says, no, we're good. God will protect us. And the servant's like, how can you say that? And so Elisha says, I'll, I'll, listen, I'll pray for you. Father in heaven, can you please allow my servant to see what I see? And, and when the prayer was finished, it tells us that the servant was able to look out on the mountains amongst all the troops of the Syrian army and to see interspersed among them what the Bible calls chariots of fire. I don't know if that was the inspiration for the boring movie from the 80s. Uh, but there on the hills were the angelic realm. It brings to our minds what we've learned from Romans, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? It's not this that we're worried about. It's a, it's a war that's waged in our minds between spiritual forces. And God, who is over all that is matter and physical, 
who reigns in the spiritual is able to overcome what we cannot. It's up to us to choose to think in line with him and his word to us. Psychology has this <clears throat> phrase or this uh, def- whatever, this word that uh, basically brings to mind what I'm trying to say to us. Um, if a, a secular counselor was talking to you about overcoming your cognitive biases, they would talk in terms of uh, cognitive reframing. Cognitive reframing is creating a different way of looking at a situation or a relationship by changing the meaning that we've assigned to it. Uh, just so you know, when I do counseling, whether it was with couples or with just individuals as they're going through stuff, I let them go for a long time and just tell me what's going on. And then one of my favorite pivots in counseling is to say, so how's that working for you? And they usually say, not great, that's why I'm here. And then I say, cool. So that's all the things that you've done to try to fix the problem so far and they haven't worked. Can we agree? Yes. Well, then we need to start looking at this different and trying different things so that God can work through you in this situation, in this relationship, and bring about a different result. And for that to happen, you have to change. You have to rethink or reframe the stuff that's going on. What's really happening is we're just saying, hey, man, Every morning sky has a, well, not everyone, but a lot of them have a, a combination of clouds and sunlight. And you get to frame how your life's going to go, at least how you're going to think about it and think through it. So you can wake up every day and frame the clouds. Today is going to stink. I got to go to that job with those people and sit in those meetings and then come home to that spouse, and because it's Monday, I gotta eat that meatloaf. Boo! Mondays, right? And you have a rotten day because you started focused on the clouds. Or you can, like David wrote in Psalm 118, say, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That'd be a great song. And you could say, you know what? It's Monday. I got to get up and go to work with those people. But at least I got a job. And sure, I'm perfect with my spouse, but at least we have the covenant and the love that we have. And yeah, I don't like meatloaf, but at least I got groceries. Praise be to God. It's your choice. You can see the donut, or you can see the hole. You can see the sun, or you can see the clouds. Counselors will sit there and just say, okay, how do we reframe what you've been going through? Well, uh, they'd give some pointers like this. First of all, when you come to a situation that is going to bring about this negative thinking uh, or a distress or, or, or whatever, just stay calm. Just stay calm. And then as, as you're not freaking out, try to assess the situation correctly because that perception thing is tricky. Like, like we can, you know, make a mountain out of, my, my mom always used to say this, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. I've never seen a molehill. I was just in the mountains. But I get the point. Don't take little things and make them big things. Stay in the truth. 
And then, as you are operating, assessing things correctly, uh, work hard to come against the natural downers that just kind of crop up in your thoughts. We've all got them in certain situations. They're just natural things, natural defaults that are already kind of strongholds or ruts in our head that, that we defer to that kind of mess us up in that particular situation. I'll share with you mine. I'm not super handy. I own a home. Can we all agree that homes break? Like, it seems like in my world, on the regular. I came home last night after my trip. One of the drawers in my kitchen was off its rails, and I'd already fixed that thing once, apparently not correctly. Are you with me? And so I get home, and my first kind of sense after, you know, seeing my wife after a week and, and saying out to my father-in-law and enjoying that part, is like, oh, no, i got to fix this drawer. And I could feel the stress just rising in me. You've heard the stories. I break things worse, right? But here, when, I, when I've done well in these situations, I haven't defaulted to those, you know, uh, uh, negative feelings. I've been like, you know what, I can do this. By the grace of God, I'll get through this and not make things worse. I, uh, I can report that the drawer works again. And, and it goes beyond that. I don't like spending money. I, we, we were walking in our yard uh, just recently, and Eleanor's pointed out, hey, Mark, those are shingles. It's the only house uh, back in our yard, ours. And so I determined, hey, those are our shingles. And I went up on the roof, and sure enough, there's been some damage to our roof. We think we kind of know where it's from, but there's huge holes in the plywood. It's not just shingles falling off. There's huge holes in the plywood underneath where these shingles blew off. And, and so I'm freaking out. Does anybody know how much roofs cost these days? Big bucks, everything's like, you know, crazy expensive in the building world because COVID. Anyway, so I'm freaking out. Anybody in here like, you know, all of a sudden repairs that you got to do? Those stress me out. But here's the deal. By the grace of God, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to walk the process. I've never made a home claim in my life. Always had home insurance, apartment insurance before that. I've never filed anything. I don't even know how to do it. But I'm like, I got this insurance. I'm paying for that every year. Maybe I'll call them. And I called them. And shorter sto- or longer story shorter, we're getting a new roof. Hey, yay. Thank you, three of you. Anyway, uh, but the point is, instead of just spinning out and freaking out and, and eating a whole pan of brownies, that's how I cope, <laughs> I just tried to do this last thing, live in the truth, just walk through the process, stay hopeful. Continue anyway, but that, that's that's more secularly speaking. I'm not here to speak to you about you know psychology necessary. Let me tell you about the spiritual side of this. The spiritual side of this is that we have been blessed by God in this life with Christ to be able to no longer conform to the world and its patterns, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Right, and so God, by His grace, can go into these you know battlegrounds that are between our temples, and he can start rerouting and re, uh, you know, wiring what needs to be fixed so that we can, in his strength, walk through whatever life brings us. And so, our quest is to do what Jesus taught his early followers. In John 8, he says this. He says, uh, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and... Uh, you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Now, who's into freedom? Anybody like freedom? I love freedom. 
But when we say freedom in the scriptures, when, when Jesus here is saying, I'll set you free, he's not saying I'm going to set you free to do whatever you want. I'm going to set you free so that you can, in obedience, do whatever I want and live in the truth that I give. It's a difficult thing sometimes. Hard to learn. You know, this whole, I'm going to choose what Jesus says and not what my mind tells me. I'm going to choose to walk through this according to his word and not according to my wisdom. It's a big step in the Christ life. It uh, requires surrender, patience. That's a hard one. Anybody? It requires all of these things. But by God's grace, we've been promised that as we walk with him, he'll show us his truth and he'll set us free. So crucial because my experience has been that a lot of times life doesn't work out like we thought. Anybody? Yeah, uh, like there's some of you in here who went to school for a long time to be able to do some job and you've never had that job. You've had to settle for a different job in a different field because that's all you could get. And you're like, what was that all about? Why did I get that piece of paper if this is what, you know, if this is what I'm going to do? Some of you, you waited your whole life to find your mate and you finally found him and the first few years were great, but the last 10 or 12 have not been. And you're like, really? This is it? It's what I signed up for? can be disillusioning. Life goes in directions that we don't expect. Uh, your kid is walking across the street in his college town. He's struck by a car. That's a life changer. Uh, you contract uh, a disease, and everybody else just has like flu-like symptoms, and, and you end up in the hospital on a ventilator. What's up with that? Again, we're not in control of our lives. A lot of times it doesn't go according to script. How do we handle things then? Well, spiritually speaking, we ask God to help us reframe what we're going through so that we can see him, follow him, and receive from him what he wants to give. Paul had that experience. In Acts 20, uh, Paul, who has been having all this incredible success going around in the Mediterranean, uh, planting churches, a lot of the back of your Bible are letters to those churches. He hears from the Holy Spirit and he tells all of the elders from Ephesus that he has been told by God to head to Jerusalem and speak to his own people, the Jews. He's going to bring the gospel back home. He's like, I know it's going to be hard. He actually says, God's told me it's going to be, you know, just um, trouble in every town I go to. But I know that I know that I know that I'm supposed to head to Jerusalem. So he does. You may want to guess how long he got to stay in Jerusalem on this God-directed quest, this God-directed trip. Seven days. After seven days, uh, the, the, the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, knowing, know of, knowing of Paul, who used to be Saul of Tarsus, says, we're going to kill this guy. They have this riot. They almost do kill him. Paul appeals to the Romans who are in charge, asks for a trial, and then is sent not to Jerusalem's courts, but to Rome's courts. Read the rest of Acts. He goes through all kinds of craziness, shipwrecks, all this craziness. And then he finally arrives in Rome, and he's a prisoner. Talk about a zag. The Holy Spirit told me to go to Jerusalem and preach the gospel. I was there seven days. And I'm spending what would end up being the end of my life in prison. What's this all about? It's from prison that he writes several of his letters. One of them was to a place called Philippi. And I'm just telling you right now, if it was Mark the Apostle, 
who had been sent to Jerusalem but ended up in jail, Philippians would sound a whole lot different. Because I'd be like, dear Philippi, can you believe this? I mean, if anybody should get a free skate, it should be Mark the Apostle. I've gone around, I've planted more churches than anybody anywhere. I've preached the gospel in places. Uh, I've, I've done more than anybody can, else, or can brag of doing. And, and I was going to Jerusalem on, under you know, the behest of the Holy Spirit. I was there for seven days and I got thrown in jail. What a ripoff. Signed, Mark. There. Who's grateful that I wasn't the... This is what Paul writes. Paul doesn't look at the clouds. I'm in prison. This is great. Look what he says in verse 12 of chapter 1. He says this. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Put another way, how great is this? He says, uh, here's the deal. It has become known throughout the whole imperial garden to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Here's the, Paul would be strapped like eight hours a day uh, to a Roman guard. And he would spend those eight hours telling the Roman guard about Jesus. And many in the Roman guard were coming to Christ. How about that? Like, who's the prisoner now, right? Yeah, hey. Hey, what's up, buddy? Want to hear about Jesus? Here it comes. Eight hours. He says, not only that, not, not only is the whole imperial guard being affected for Christ, but the fact that God has given me this opportunity, this platform, has changed the lives of the Christians outside of the prison. He says in verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul could have ended that being like, how great is this? God's so cool. I thought Jerusalem, but this is better. You know what he was doing? He was doing like what maybe some of you did this morning. Um, he's been given his life, and uh, like on apples or bananas, occasionally there's going to be bruises, right? Anybody ever have one that's been like rolling around the back of a car for a while? <laughs> like, you know, unless you're one of those weirdos who eats the bruised parts. Uh, <laughs> most of us have figured out well, it's not like the whole apple's ruined. I just eat the good parts around it. I focus on the donut and not the whole. I leave the bruises to God and I go with what he's given me in the good. Huh. Love that about Paul. Want that in my own life. See, Paul had learned from Jesus the secret um, to living life. He, he talks about it in chapter 4. Let me read you these verses and I'll let you go home. He says, uh, I, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He's talking basically about the fact that Philippi had sent Paul, uh, probably through a messenger, uh, a gift of money. If you were a prisoner back then, you couldn't provide for yourselves, and certainly the Romans weren't going to provide for you. And so you had to depend on people outside the system to bring you what you need to eat and live. And so Philippi, uh, although they hadn't had a chance before this, they were strapped themselves to give to Paul's cause, had sent a gift. And so Philippi or the letter to the Philippians is basically a thank you note. But even as he's saying thank you, he's like, but wait a minute, let me make sure I clarify. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. 
For I have learned in whatever situation I am uh, how to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here it is. Say it with me. You've heard it before probably. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So it's not about the circumstances. It's about my Savior. It's not about what's going on. It's about who is ahead of me. And as I follow him through whatever I face, he will lead me on. So let me finish by saying this, a couple things that you should consider as you move forward in reframing your thoughts. The first one is this, learn to thank God for what didn't happen. Are you good at that? A lot of times we look at life and we're like, oh, I can't believe this happened. Hey, could have been worse probably. I heard this story, uh, Rochelle tells it in his book. He says, this young lady, she's 18 years old. She comes to her parents and she says, mom and dad, I need to talk to you. She sits them down and says, here's the deal. I went out Friday night and I told you never, never, I know you told me never to do this, but I went to a party and I got a little drunk and before I knew it, I was there with another guy and we went to a room and we hooked up and I just found out this week that I am pregnant and, uh, and so uh, here's the deal. As soon as he gets done with parole, uh, we're planning to move in together and, uh, and you know, take care of this baby. He'll, he'll get a job, he promises me, uh, and I'll probably finish high school, but that's what's up. And her parents, you can just see her parents, the jaw's hitting the floor, right? And so before they can offer their rebuttal, she says, wait, 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 wait. None of that's true. I did get a D in chemistry. <laughs> but aren't you glad that all that other stuff didn't happen? Smart girl, right? Framing. <laughs> Letting people know that they should be thankful for what didn't happen. <laughs> On top of that, look for the, for the goodness of God in the things that you weren't expecting. I could, I mean, I don't have time, but I could just detail for you over and over again. When my life zagged, God was in it. I'm married to the woman I'm married to because I ended up going to a college I didn't really want to go to, and I met her there. It's just the beginning of it. But here's what I'm talking about when I say uh, find the good. And a lot of times when it comes to life, um, we interpret the goodness of God through the lens of our circumstances. Listen to me. This is good. I didn't make it up. Don't determine the goodness of God through the lens of your circumstances. Look at your circumstances through the lens of the goodness of God. Assume that God is good. And even if everything around me isn't, he is. And so I'm not going to let these circumstances change my mind about him and his goodness. I'm going to look at these circumstances with the firm belief that my God is in them. He's for me, not against me. Because he is victorious, I am victorious. Even though everything else is going crazy, I will trust in him. It is well in my soul. Let Jesus finally frame your life. Let Jesus be the one who points you to what he's doing and away from the things that the world would defeat you in.
If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I'd love to talk to you about that. It's probably the first cognitive bias you've got to get past. You've just disbelieved in the existence of God or the need for Jesus. And, and we need to settle that one first so that we can get on to these other things. But if you're here this morning, like I know a lot of you are, and you know Jesus, would you please, for the love of God, you've heard that before, but because you love God, would you let him renew your minds, reframe your thoughts, and follow him always.